And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey, everybody, and happy Monday to you. Welcome to The Athletic Baseball Show. This is the Monday Mailbag, and believe it or not, there are only 10 days left in Major League Baseball's regular season. Tim McMaster here along with Ken Rosenthal. Still some playoff spots up for grabs and still time for more home runs to be hit. As we record this on Sunday before the Sunday night game, Aaron's Judge sits on 60 home runs heading into that late game against the Red Sox at the stadium. Ken will be there. Ken Rosenthal joining me now. And Ken... There's another guy hitting lots of home runs late in the season. That guy, Albert Pujols, two home runs on Friday night to get to 700, six in the month, 14 since August 10th, three in that stretch, multi-homer games. It's been incredible, and this is a guy that you've covered, I mean, really his entire career. That's true. It has been his entire career, and one of the neat parts of my job is when you've done it this long, you've seen a lot. And I've seen a lot of different things in his career. And I'll start off by saying 700 to me is a great surprise. I just never thought he'd be able to do it because of the way he faded and declined in Anaheim, especially. And even last year, he was good and he did some good things for the Dodgers once he was released and signed by the Dodgers. But who expected this? Now, I know Greg Amsinger of MLB Network predicted that he would hit 700 on a Friday night in Los Angeles back in April, hats off to my former colleague. Even a <laughs> blind squirrel finds an acorn once in a while. But at the same time, it is surprising that he got there. Now, it's interesting. Ben Fredrickson of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch wrote a column shortly after he hit 700, quoting Pujols from April or even spring training. I'm sorry. It was spring training. And Ben Fredrickson apparently said to Pujols, hey, 700, I don't see it or something along those lines. And Pujols said, well... 500 was tough, 600 was tough, and sure enough, he had that faith. But I'm going to share four different little stories with you, little vignettes of memories I have from Pujol's career. One is a playing memory, and it's a memory I'm sure a lot of people have. And the other three are kind of media-related, and Albert could be, at times, difficult, even a tad surly. He was not at Bond's level, but like a lot of great players, he took a certain mindset and at times could rub the media wrong and the media could rub him wrong. It was just typical baseball writer stuff. But these stories are kind of cool, so I'll share them all. Let's start with the one that is from a playing perspective, and this is the one that might be the most vivid moment of his career. Ninth inning, Game 5, 2005 NLCS at Minute Maid Park or whatever it was called back then. And, of course, in the ninth inning, Brad Lidge was on the mound. The Cardinals were trailing with two runners on. 
and Pujols hit one of the most dramatic, impressive home runs anyone will ever see. It bounced off the plastic or window panels at Minute Maid and back toward the playing surface. Now, I didn't know at the time, no one knew how hard it was hit. Jeff Passan, who was then with Yahoo, wrote a few years ago that it was 117 miles per hour and traveled an estimated 470 feet. A lot of people would say, yeah, it wasn't 470, it was longer than that. The home run gave the Cardinals the lead. They went back to St. Louis, trailing three games to two, and then Roy Oswalt shut them down in game six. The Astros go to the World Series. So that was one memory, and Tim Kirkchen had a great tweet about it, and I'm sure he said this on television as well. He said that on the Astros' flight to St. Louis after game five, Brad Osmus, who of course was the Astros' catcher, later became a manager, he got on the intercom on the plane and he said to his teammates, including Brad Lidge, if you look out the left side of the plane, you'll see Albert's home run. It is orbiting the earth. And that's how we all felt about it. It was an amazing shot and something that is indelible to anyone who saw it either on television or live. I happened to be in the press box that day and it was just stunned silence in that ballpark. Now, advancing Another year, 2006 NLCS. Now, this is my first year working for Fox on television. And in the NLCS, it was Mets versus Cardinals, very memorable for both sets of teams and their fans. Glavin pitched seven shutout innings in game one. And after the game, Pujols said, ah, he wasn't good at all, and kind of expanded on that. Basically said Glavin threw as he always threw, change-ups, this and that. But that was the quote, wasn't good at all. Well, naturally, this created quite a firestorm. And the next day, I interviewed him for Fox pregame. So it was an interview we were going to run in the pregame show. And I asked him, Albert Pujols, about that quote. Hey, why'd you say that? What were you thinking? A day later, do you have any other thoughts? And he said, Ken, you know how the writers are. (laughs) And I just... Realized at that time, maybe Albert Pools didn't know I was a writer. And maybe now that I'm on television, it's going to be a little bit different for me. And it was after that point. He answered the question. It was just kind of funny. You know how the writers are. Now, fast forward five more years. By this time, I think Albert had figured out I was one of the writers. And there was an incident in the World Series that got him rather upset with all the writers. And we were upset with him, to be perfectly honest. 2-1 lost to Texas in game two. The Cardinals lose this game in Arlington. Series is tied. And in that game, Pujols committed an error when he didn't feel the pivotal cutoff throw in the ninth inning. It was kind of a weird play. And naturally, considering it was a one-run game, we all wanted to talk to him and just get his view of the play. We often ask players about specific plays simply to get a better understanding for what was going on during that time on the field. A lot of times there's stuff we didn't know that the viewers or listeners or readers would not have known. And that's our job to find out. Well, that night, none of the prominent Cardinals players were in the clubhouse. Albert wasn't there. Holiday wasn't there. Molina wasn't there. Berkman wasn't there. I don't know what happened. Maybe they were ducking us. Maybe their media relations staff didn't do a good enough job explaining. "Uh, This is the World Series. You guys need to explain what's going on here. Who knows? But... Needless to say, the next day was an off day. A number 
of writers nationally. And remember, a lot more writers covered the World Series back then. There were more newspapers. He was criticized, Albert Pujols was. And I remember my column. I don't have it in front of me, but it was kind of a reasoned, measured explanation of why this mattered. Why, when a player is in a play that is crucial to a game, even if it's negative, he has a responsibility, especially in a World Series situation, to share his thoughts with the media and, by extension, the fans. And again, it was not a rip job by any stretch of the imagination. There was much worse written about him at that time. Anyway, Game 3, that was the game he hit three homers. Three homers in a World Series game. Hasn't happened very often. So naturally, I interview him after the game on television live. And as I'm interviewing him, Albert is not looking at me. We're along the third base line, and he's looking out to left field. He's answering the questions, but he's not looking anywhere near me. He's getting picked up by the mic because the mics are strong. But it was, it was a weird, awkward thing. Now, I don't think he had read what I had written. I just believe he was aware that there was a lot of criticism. So I sort of thought nothing of it. As a baseball writer, you learn that this is how sometimes you get treated by players. But then I go back to the Fox production truck. Now, it's the World Series. All of our big executives are there. And our executives were hot. How can he act like that on national television after the biggest game of his life? What was he thinking? Now, it wasn't that Albert didn't answer the questions. He did. He just had an interesting way of ignoring the questioner who happened to be me. So I never forgot that. It was always kind of something that stuck with me. And then go fast forward many, many more years to last season. After he had been released by the Angels on May 17th, He's with the Dodgers, and we have a broadcast on June 26th, about five or six weeks later. Now, some writers had a very good relationship with Albert. Some had a, an average relationship. That I would classify myself in that category, neither good nor bad. I didn't find him particularly accommodating. I didn't find him particularly rude. It was just sometimes you did okay with him, sometimes you didn't. Whatever, that's fine. Not a big deal either way. But that day, before the Fox game, I am positioned right next to the Dodgers dugout. And in Dodger Stadium, our position as a field reporter is on a platform that is above the dugout. So I'm kind of looking down at the dugout. Dave Roberts is right next to me as the manager. And here comes Albert from the other end of the dugout. Big smile on his face. Puts out his hand. Kenny, how you doing? And I was like, what's going on here? But the only conclusion I could draw was that and this is me playing amateur psychologist, and I don't know for a fact that this was the case. But my guess is he wasn't all that happy in Anaheim for many years, and he has definitely shared, both in recent days after hitting number 700 and before that, how happy and fulfilled and energized he was to join the Dodgers and be part of that team. So often players mellow as time goes on. I guess that's somewhat the case with Albert. And I'll share one more thing, and this goes to my late friend, Joe Strauss, who covered the Cardinals for many years for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Joe was one of the great beat writers ever. I worked with him in Baltimore, and it was a privilege. Albert's nickname, of course, during his big years in St. Louis was El Hombre, the man. A Latin take on Stan the Man Musial, right? Well, Albert had a nickname for Joe, who was a very aggressive reporter, the kind of guy who 
when the sun came up and it looked like a nice day, he wasn't so sure. <laughs> well, Albert's nickname was, for Joe, El Diablo, the devil. And it was a joking thing. It wasn't nasty or anything like that. But Joe loved the nickname. Albert loved calling him that. And it's just a great memory that I have of the two of them. So that's it, Tim. Those are my Albert Pujols memories. And I know you could say, Ken, what about give me your top 10 playing moments? Yeah, we could do that too. But anybody could do that. I just thought I'd give you some insight into some of the other things. And again, it's not that I have any hard feelings. Some of this stuff was rather funny, even in the moment. But hey, this was a competitive and is a competitive individual. He wants to win that third World Series in the worst way. And one of the cool things about Pujols and this chase, like Judge, he has put the team first. That's all he has talked about. That's all he has wanted to talk about. Obviously, when he hit 700, he was obligated to talk about that achievement. But it's been really cool to see this crowning moment in his career. I do remember him dodging the media back in that World Series. I was covering that World Series, too, for MLB.com. And I remember just getting word from my bosses at the time. What do you mean Albert didn't talk? Like... I don't know. He's not around. And I remember we hung out in the clubhouse for a long time thinking maybe he would show up and he didn't. <laughs> and uh, then, correct. <laughs> then, then, the next, then the next day was the next day and, and, uh, and, and on we went. But that was my first year traveling and covering the playoffs for, uh, for MLB.com. So it was definitely interesting. Uh, and with that, let's move on to the mailbag. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. All right, if you want to get involved uh, down the road, we are heading close to the playoffs now. 646-543-7072 to get your questions in, or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Ken, you mentioned the Dodgers and Albert Pujols' brief time there. Well, Zach has a question about the Dodgers. He says, who would they rather face in the Division Series and League Championship Series, the Mets or the Braves? Would you rather face the Mets in a short series coming off a wild card where they have to use both Scherzer and DeGrom and the Braves in a longer series or Mets in the NLCS where you would have to face DeGrom and Scherzer twice possibly? This is a good question, but it does assume that the team that does not win the NL East and wins the wild card is going to win its wild card series. And we don't know that. If it's the Mets or the Braves, they could lose to whoever their opponent is, be it the Phillies most likely or the Padres. Who knows? It could even be the Brewers if they sneak in. Granted, all of this is still in play and some of those matchups have better chances of happening than others. But let's assume that the wild card 
top wild card, which will be the NL East second place team, indeed advances? That is the question. In my opinion, if I were the Dodgers, I would rather face the Mets in the division series. You'd get DeGrom and Scherzer, but you'd get them only once in games two and three because they would pitch in the wild card series. They could not come back until games two and three. I looked at the calendar. That's the way it works. Game two would be on normal rest if the game one starter was DeGrom or Scherzer. They'd be on that normal rest for game two of the DS. So that's how it would work. You'd face them once. That's better, in my opinion, than facing them twice. Now, you could make the case that while you would probably face them twice in the NLCS, though it's not certain that that would happen based on how long the DS went, right? But... I would like to stay away from those two cats as long as I possibly could, or as much as I possibly could. Now, the Braves, let's face it, their staff is pretty darn good as well. With Strider on the injured list now and his health uncertain, an oblique is a tricky thing, not easy to come back from, you don't know exactly what their rotation is going to look like. It's going to look like, to some extent, Max Fried, Kyle Wright, Charlie Morton. Those are the first three without Strider. If Strider is in the mix, one of those guys gets bumped down to a slot, a one slot. That's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. It's pretty darn good, actually. But DeGrom and Scherzer are DeGrom and Scherzer. So I would like minimal exposure to them if I'm the Dodgers. And even if that means having to face the Braves staff in a longer series with Strider, for instance, I just think that's an easier path. Not that it's going to be easy either way. All right, next question comes from Adam. He says, I have a follow-up question based on last week's discussion about the minor league players' union. Previously, weren't players on the 40-man roster part of the major league union? I can answer that for you, Adam. Yes. If so, how will the 14 minor leaguers with that roster designation be represented going forward? To the question regarding a minor league strike or lockout, would the minor league 40-man players also have to work stoppage, enter the work stoppage? Could clubs combine rosters to make teams of 28 players and hold games during a minor league work stoppage? Okay, there's a lot there, and these are all fair points. And I know to fans and even to me, this is kind of confusing, right? Because you're going to have overlapping situations once the minor leaguers are fully unionized and this is a full go, which it will be. 40-man roster players, as Tim said, they are all in the major league, the Major League Baseball Players Association. So if you're on a 40-man roster and you're in the minor leagues, which is, of course, possible for the 14 guys that you mentioned, and that's the way it will be, those players are still in the major league union. Now, if there is a minor league work stoppage, what happens? They're not going to cross the picket line. It's all essentially one big union, even though it will have two separate collective bargaining agreements. So they will not cross the picket line. There will be no combining of teams or players or anything like that. They would be out. So that is how it's going to look. That's how it's going to evolve. There are going to be other questions that arise here. Because the minor leaguers and major leaguers have very different objectives and different salaries and all of that, there will be some things to kind of get through, resolve going forward. But this is pretty clear. If you're on a 40-man roster, you are in the Major League Baseball Players Association. And if the minor leaguers went on strike, you would not play. 
It's definitely going to be interesting to monitor how it all plays out. Hopefully there just won't be work stoppages and we won't have to worry about any of this. Next question comes from voicemail. Hey, Ken and Tim, this is Lee, longtime listener, Braves fan. Um, I was listening to the Braves radio broadcast on Tuesday, and the guys on the broadcast were talking about how much of an impact the COVID season had on their interpretations of balls and strikes from the booth, having to watch the games entirely on TV and relying on the little gray box that gets overlaid the strike zone. They really wondered how much more scrutiny the umpires were under based on the recent both technological developments and the reality of COVID. How much of that do you think contributes to potential automatic balls and strikes change we all kind of assume is coming? Is the greater scrutiny we put umpires under a result of something that has happened in the world, or is it just the reality of the technology pushing the game forward and our viewing experience becoming more accurate? Anyways, just love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Lee, first of all, the COVID season, I don't believe, has anything to do with this. What the announcers were talking about was the difficulty that they had calling balls and strikes, not being in the ballpark, and having to rely on television. I assume that's what they were talking about. I was not listening myself to the exact broadcast you were. With regard to the automatic strike zone, that is something that has been coming because of the advances in technology. Now, we're not there yet, and this system has not been perfected yet. They call it the ABS, Automatic Ball Strike System. And until it is, until Major League Baseball can be confident that that system would work to a satisfactory way, it's not going to happen. And clearly, the boxes that you see on television that show you the strike zone and show you where the pitch is relative to the strike zone, that is part of these technological advances. Those came first. Those aren't perfect, and sometimes umpires will tell you they're a little bit misleading, as can camera angles be misleading. But the automatic ball strike zone, that should be pretty uniformly excellent, period. You're not going to do this unless it's going to be 99 point something percent, because right now the umpires, for all their faults, and none of them are perfect, none of you are perfect at your jobs, I'm certainly not perfect at my job, but they get a vast majority of ball strike calls right. So... We're probably some time away from that, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the months, years ahead, but I don't believe it has anything to do with the COVID season. It's simply a byproduct of the technology getting better and better and better to the point where we can now discuss an automatic strike zone. We still have some questions regarding the new rules trickling in. We have a couple this week. First from Eric. He says, question about the pitch clock. I'm assuming that it will be pretty straightforward if a player or umpire gets dinged by a foul ball, they'll hold the clock. But I'm wondering if pitchers can still toss a ball out of play that they don't like. Can pitchers theoretically use that to get a longer rest between pitches? Well, I asked my friend Jason Stark this question, Tim, and your friend as well. And the reason I asked him is because couple of weeks ago, I made the mistake of answering something off the top of my head without first consulting Jason, and it revolved around the infield dirt at the time. So I figured, all right, let's not have that happen again. Let's get this right the first time. So I texted Jason, and I said, hey, how does that work? Because this is a really good question. Pitchers throw out balls all the time, especially these days when the balls seem to be, according to them, inconsistent. And Jason said, the answer, as I understand it, is yes, 
the first time the pitcher asked to throw out a ball. First time. Then the clock gets reset. After that, it's an umpire discretion. So normally it's going to be fine, but if an umpire decides it's a clear stalling tactic, well, then he can call a violation. So that's how it's going to work. I would think as this pitch clock is implemented next season, we're going to have certain situations that arise that are gray area type situations. And umpires are going to need to use their better judgment. And if a pitcher has a ball he doesn't like and he throws one out, okay. Maybe he throws two out, okay. But at the same time, when an umpire makes a call that players will say showed no feel or was not in the spirit of the rules, we're going to have problems. That's to be expected, and we'll see how this all plays out. But at the same time, I will say it again. I am looking forward to the pitch clock. In my opinion, it is a huge advance for the sport, not just from a playing standpoint, but from an aesthetic standpoint, from the fan experiences standpoint, all of that. It's going to improve the game. All right, this next one comes from the category of you can't keep everyone happy. Andrew says, hey guys, while I'm generally in favor of the pitch clock and the bigger bases, I don't really like the shift idea. Everyone keeps talking about trying to make more complete hitters who do more than just strike out, walk, or hit a home run. By putting in the shift, it feels like you're actually rewarding these flawed hitters like Joey Gallo, who refuse to do anything but try and hit with power to their pull side. Doesn't that seem counterproductive to the goal of getting players who can play the game differently or more in the older style? Fair point, Andrew. And there has been some talk among baseball people about how Certain left-handed hitters are going to be even more pull-conscious now because they can be, right? And people will say, well, why can't Joey Gallo just go the other way? Why can't other left-handed hitters just go the other way? Well, one, it's not that easy, okay? We're facing the best pitching in the world here. We're talking about facing the best pitching in the world. And while some hitters can do what Luis Arias does, what Jeff McNeil does, and seemingly manipulate the bat like a magic wand, most can't. The pitching is too difficult for them to do that. The idea of putting two infielders on each side of the bag and having their feet on the dirt is to open the field up more so that a ball up the middle has a better chance of getting a hit than it has in recent years. Granted, a shortstop can still be one foot to the side of the bag and basically playing up the middle, but this will open up some area. That has not been there in recent years, for sure, as the shift has come into play and become more popular with clubs. The other thing that this will help is, hopefully, infielders will be able to display their athleticism to a greater extent because they're not bunched up in a shift. They have more area to cover, and a guy can range one way or the other in a way that maybe he wouldn't if you had three infielders on one side of the bag and maybe one in the outfield. So we'll see. This is the one area, actually they're all areas that qualify by this description, where things remain to be seen. But the shift in particular, the unintended consequences, how this is all going to alter the game or not, that is an open question. And there is considerable debate within the game on just how much of an impact this will have. I know my colleague John Smoltz at Fox believes that the strike zone, lowering the strike zone, would be a much more important change that would have a much more dramatic effect on the game than where we are now. That way you couldn't pitch upstairs the way you do now and 
you would just have, in his view, a better strike zone, a more constructive strike zone. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. And fans need to understand, and actually media members need to understand as well, that these rules are not set in stone. And that if adjustments need to be made, it will behoove Major League Baseball to make those adjustments. So, again, the experiments begin next year. They've been going on in the minor leagues, and we'll see the impact once it actually all gets underway. And for anybody that wants a more analytical look at what could happen player to player, um, Derek Van Riper and Eno Saris last week on Rates and Barrels, which is one of our podcasts here at The Athletic. It's actually technically a fantasy podcast, but they go well beyond fantasy sports. But they went into basically which players will benefit the most from the lack of shifting. And they did it all by the statistical analysis and numbers of where players hit the ball now and, and how it'll open things up. So check that one out if you want more from that side of how to look at this. All right. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you get injured, you don't want to wait for answers and options. That's why it may be time to explore the Nano Experience, a revolutionary treatment option designed to help active people get back to the lifestyles they love. Nanotechnology allows surgeons to see inside even the smallest joints and treat orthopedic conditions with a tiny camera and other nano instrumentation, all through a barely there poke hole incision. Wherever you've experienced an injury, whether it be a foot and ankle, hand and wrist, shoulder and elbow, knee or hip, nanoarthroscopy can be used to diagnose and treat your condition in an extremely, minimally invasive way. Don't wait to learn about the revolutionary nano experience and how it could help you or someone you know after an injury. Visit arthrex.info slash the athletic. This is not medical advice and is not meant to be a substitute for advice from your physician. Talk with your physician about your health condition, potential surgical risks, and whether Arthrex products are right for you. Postoperative management is patient specific and dependent upon your physician's assessment. Individual results will vary. Next question comes from Dan. He says, Hey, Ken. It's been a fun summer for Cleveland fans who watch the team consistently, and a huge part of that has been Josh Naylor. Beyond the helmet tosses, clutch homers, headbutts with Tito, there is still a looming question about his leg, at least for me there is. The injury sustained in that ugly collision in 2021 did extensive damage to his leg and knee, and it's no secret the club has been very careful to monitor it this season. I don't know if that's because it's one year removed from the injury or if the damage is that is permanent. As a diehard fan trying to evaluate the next few seasons, my question is this. Are there any notable precedents to this injury? And if so, how did that affect the overall trajectory and longevity of a player? I don't know of any precedents. And I actually checked, went online, Googled, tried to find if there was a player even in another sport that had this injury. I'm sure there have been. I just couldn't find them. Now, this was a rare injury. I can say that. It was written that way at the time. What it was, was a closed fracture and dislocation of the right ankle, as well as torn ligaments. All of that. Closed fracture, dislocation, torn ligaments. Required surgery. Ended his season late last June. Okay, so that's what happened. He did not play from 
the end of June through the rest of the 2021 season and did not return this season while recovering until April 15th. Played 12 games in April, 16 in May. They were taking it easy with him. In July, July 30th, he actually sat out a game. He had numbness in that ankle. And clearly, there were some lingering effects from the injury. But by and large, down the stretch, he has played and played pretty much every day. 24 games played in August. 22 in September as of Sunday with several games remaining this month. Granted, the Guardians might clinch and he can rest, but he's played. So as for the long-term prognosis, I would assume it's pretty good. I guess it's conceivable that that's an area of vulnerability for him now, and he'll have to work on it and strengthen it and make sure it stays strong. But at the same time, it seemingly is repaired, and that is good news for Guardians fans. Josh Naylor is a fabulous, fun player to watch. His brother Bo is a catcher in their system. He might be on the team next year, and... That team has just been one of my favorites all season long. It's not just because of the way they play, that old school, scrappy, chaotic base running, not necessarily hitting home run style. It's just that they're the youngest team in baseball. They figured out a way to compete, granted in a weak division, and here they are about to clinch this thing as of Sunday. Maybe they do it by the time, Tim, this podcast is out to the world. All right, and one last question. This one comes from Joe. He says, is there any reason John Sherman decided to relieve Dayton Moore of his responsibilities today, and he wrote this on September 21st, instead of the end of the season? Is Piccolo going to fill his role long-term, or are they likely going to hire from another organization? First off, J.J. Piccolo is indeed the replacement. He's the guy. I don't expect them to hire someone from the outside, at least at this point. Now, granted, the entire organization is on notice now from John Sherman. J.J. was Dayton Moore's right-hand man, one of them. So it's conceivable in the future, if things don't turn around quickly, that he too will be let go. But Sherman said he kept Piccolo because of the role he will play in data-driven decision-making, in reshaping their player development, particularly on the pitching side, in leaning more heavily on analytics. That was his choice to do that. As for the timing... I didn't find it especially curious. This time of year, and we learned of Don Mattingly and the Marlins mutually parting ways on Sunday, is the time of year when teams make these kinds of decisions. The bigger surprise was when the Rangers let John Daniels go on August 17th. That was early. But the Royals' thinking seemingly is that J.J. Piccolo will now have a head start in the offseason. He'll have a little bit more time to evaluate Mike Matheny, the manager, and his coaching staff. And then they'll go from there. Now, the interesting backdrop to all this, and I'm not going to toot our horn too much, but a little bit. The Athletic published a story on September 15th. It was written by three former Royals beat writers, Andy McCullough, Rustin Dodd, and Alec Lewis. Alec now covering the Vikings for us. Andy's a national writer, as is Rustin. And it was a very lengthy and, in my view, balanced examination of what has gone wrong with the Royals' pitching development. It's a problem. It's been a problem. And they did a very deep, detailed analysis. Now, a couple of days after that, Dayton Moore, in a radio interview, pushed back and basically said, one, he didn't like anonymous sources, okay, whatever, and two, that we're not disappointed one bit in the way our pitching development is going. We're really excited about where we are. And then three days after that is when 
Sherman announced this move. Now, I don't know if the article plays into it at all, if his response plays into it at all. I kind of doubt it on both fronts. These decisions are not made in the span of a week. They're made over time. And he came to the realization, Sherman did, that he wanted to do this. But at the same time, we did lay out, and you can go back and read that article, where the problem is with the Royals right now, or one of the problems. And it was a very well done story. And the reason I say I will toot our horn a little bit is because the way I see things, I don't like it when after the fact, after a firing, all the stuff comes out. Oh, yeah, this is what happened. Oh, no, no, no. We should, as reporters, try to find things that are going on before the fact and report on them. We did it last year with the Padres before Jace Tingler was fired. We've done it on different occasions. The Colorado Rockies was another team we did a deep dive on. And again, I don't know that a reader of The Athletic would have been surprised to learn that the Royals made a major move this week after reading what Andy, Rustin, and Alec wrote. Readers of The Athletic would have known, hey, something's going on with these guys and something needs to change. So there's my horn tooting. That'll be it for today. (laughs) I won't do it again, or at least I won't do it too much. Remember, I was the one who spent, I don't know, 2,000 words apologizing to Phillies fans this week, so we're hardly perfect ourselves. All right, and that's going to do it for this week's show. You can call us for the future episode, 646-543-7072, or email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And speaking of tooting our own horn, I will talk about what's coming up next on the Athletic Baseball Show. And speaking of Ken's mea culpa to Phillies fans, uh, coming up on Starkville on Tuesday, Scott Fransky and Larry Anderson, the broadcast team for the Phillies, are going to join uh, Jason and Doug to talk all about the Philly season, the turnaround, the fact that they are heading to October. Uh, and then the rest of the week, you get the roundtable on Wednesday, the 3 0 show on Thursday, and Derek Van Riper and Keith Law on Friday. Great stuff all week long. If you want to join The Athletic for $1 a month, up to six months, you can do it at theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, I know you're heading to the stadium tonight. Maybe Aaron Judge hits number 61, maybe not. But what is the rest of your, I said it at the beginning, 10 days before the end of the season look like? I don't exactly know, Tim. It's kind of contingent on events. I do know that Fox will have the Saturday game Mets-Braves in Atlanta next week. And I am very excited for that one. I assume it's going to go down to that weekend and beyond. Remember, the season ends this year in the middle of the following week. It's not ending on a weekend because of all the lockout stuff. We don't have to go through that. But our next Fox game is Saturday from Truist Park, Mets, Braves, and it could be a good one. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun as those two teams. That that is the race at this point yes, uh, as far the as division one. titles go. So that that's going to be a lot of fun, and the the winner gets the most, I think, out of uh, all the races going on right now too, to be able to avoid that wild card. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Mailbag. Thanks everyone out there for joining us. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10 
$10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.